Well, I ask the Holy Spirit to move. And he is faithful. Um, before I start this morning, a couple of things that I want to say. Number one, I neglected to uh, say welcome to our, our visitors who are visiting with us this morning. Glad uh, I've met a few this morning. Glad to have you all with us this morning. Um, I do want to say this. If you're visiting with us for the first time, or as I always say, the first time in a long time, there are some visitor cards there in the back of the pew. If you wouldn't mind filling one of those out so that we know that you were here this week, um, I would greatly appreciate it. You can drop it in the offering plate on your way out today. I want to say thank you and welcome to everybody who's joining us online as well this morning. Um, and then I want to say thank you for all the text messages and the phone calls and everything this week. Um, I love this church family. Y'all are a constant source of encouragement to me and I love you so much. Um, it has been a blessing this week to know how much we're loved and how much you've been praying for us this week. Um, and, and, I, and I'm telling you, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to start. I'm ready to go. I've got six, God, God is told, I, I don't know what the, what the search committee is doing. They've got their own thing that they're doing. But I'll tell you what, God has given me uh, one, five, eight messages. <laughs> I had to stop and count for a second. He's given me eight messages. Um, and, and if I get to preach all eight, Fantastic. If, a guy, if I get to preach beyond that, that's awesome. If I only get to preach three or four of them, that's fine. Wh whatever. It's, it's in God's hands. Uh, we, we are trusting God to lead us into the next generation of this church. But I want you to know I'm ready to go, uh, at least for these next eight weeks. I'm ready, and, and I have been, I have been uh, asking the Holy Spirit to move in my heart and in my life this week. Uh, and in the lives of our people. But I wanted to start by saying thank you so much for all of the prayers, all of the, the, the text messages and the phone calls that you've sent this week. So let me ask this question. As we move into this season, this might seem a little silly to ask this question, but how many of you here today have ever asked God for a little more faith? Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maybe you were in a really difficult situation. You were praying for something really big and really huge to happen, something miraculous. And in the midst of all of that tension, you spoke the words, Oh God, please increase my faith. That sounds like something you've done before. Believe me when I say that you are in some very good company. It's happened before. I want you to see this morning that God desires for you to live a life that is connected to him through faith. And that by using that faith, you can fight against the sin that comes into your life. And then you can live a life that God has planned for you. We say that we don't live by faith. Sometimes we, we feel like our, our faith is small. Or sometimes we go through periods of our life, seasons in our life, where our faith just seems completely non-existent. But can I tell you? We all live by faith in some way, shape, or form. We all live by faith in some way, shape, or form. It's simply a matter of in whom or in what you've placed that faith. A husband eats food cooked by his wife without having tested it to see if it contains poison. Right? Why? Because he has faith that his wife is not trying to kill him. 
Some of y'all may need to, some of, some of y'all are, are looking side-eyed at each other this morning already. Right? We accept paper money as legal tender in this country because we have faith that our, in our nation's monetary system. Some of you are really looking a little side-eyed this morning, right? But listen to me. These are two examples how we know that we live by faith. There are about 10 or 15 of you that sat down in a pew all together this morning. You had faith that that chair was going to, that pew was going to hold you up. All of you. Right? We live by faith. Yet strangely, so many people become agnostics where God is concerned. But you know, that's one of Satan's tricks. He causes people to reject the salvation in which a loving, faithful God so freely offers. And the Bible is not only full of people like you and I who need an extra dose of faith, but it's also filled with a whole chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, that lists out the many heroes of the faith that have gone before us. These people are amazing in their stories, and they're inspiring. But this is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. There are millions, if not billions, of others who have lived abundant lives of faith and trust in God and in His promises each and every day. So much so that I think it's appropriate to say that faith is the oxygen in the lungs of every Christian. Faith brings us to life. It sustains us. It raises us up when everything around us is falling apart. Jesus teaches us that mountains are moved by a mustard seed of faith. The Apostle Paul teaches that we live by faith and not by sight. Now, as you probably have imagined now, faith is the main teaching of our message this morning. And we're looking at a passage of scripture from Luke 17 as Jesus continues to deal with the disciples' lack and misunderstanding of the faith that Jesus is talking about. But we are also going to be looking at another section of scripture this morning in Matthew chapter 17. So let's do this. I want you to do this for me this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and open to Luke 17. Okay? And when everybody's there, I want you to hold it with your finger. And I want you to flip backwards to Matthew chapter 17 and take your little ribbon in your Bible or just dog ear the page or whatever, because we're going to bounce back and forth between those passages of scripture this morning. So I want you to be able to open them up and look at both of them. Now we'll have them on the screen for you this morning, but I believe that, uh, I, listen, every Bible that I own, I could never resell. The resale value is gone in every Bible that I own because I've marked it up so much. And there have been times in my life, and especially this week, where I have broken out old study Bibles to study just this particular passage. And I see things that I wrote when Tori and I were, uh, were members of Olive Baptist Church in Pensacola, Florida, back in 2000, 2001. 2002. I've got 20-year-old notes in some of, my, some of my Bibles that have inspired me. The Holy Spirit has given to me this week to preach to you. So I encourage you to have your Bible with you. Mark it up. Take notes. Because there are things that you will go through in your life that you can look back on and see. God spoke to me then, and he's speaking to me now. All right. I have three things that I'd like for all of us to see this morning as we, as we study scripture today. 
And as we get started, it's very important that we take a look at what's happening in the section of verses immediately preceding verses 5 through 10 of Luke 17 that is the main crux of our message this morning. But, uh, but we're going to look back and get some context. Now, I'm going to ask you all to do something else for me this morning. Oh, the new guy's coming in. He's making changes, right? No. Listen, if you're able, we're going to read God's word together. And if you're able this morning, I'd like you to stand up. Here's why. Don't do it just yet. Here's why I want you to do it. When we come together and we worship on Sunday morning and we sing songs to God in our worship time, we stand to honor God. And I truly believe that reading the word of God is worship as well, especially when we come together in this point. Now, I'm not asking you to do it at home. I'm not asking you to necessarily do it in your devotions with your family when you break them to work. Okay, kids, let's all stand up. You don't have to do that. But we are together corporately as a congregation, as a church of believers, standing together to worship God. And I believe that when we open his word and we read it, we should stand up if you're able to be able to worship him. Amen? Everybody agree with me on that? If you don't, just humor me this morning. Okay, let's stand together and read his word. Luke chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Beginning in verse 1, he said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And then he says something interesting here in verse 3. He says, but be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can do this. You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea and it will obey you. Which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes back in from the field, come at once and sit down and eat. Instead, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat. Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. And later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because what he did, because he did what was commanded? Verse 10, in the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We only, we've only done our duty. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, we come before you today and we ask you as we read these words to pour into our hearts today, Lord. Let these words change us. Oh Lord, we might not understand now, but may we Take this time right now to plead to the Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to understand this passage of Scripture and what you have for us today. Because it's going to apply to every life that is in here and every life, every soul that is watching on the internet this morning as well. God, we love you, we praise you, and we come expectantly for your word to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church family, you may be seated. Thank you. So the first thing I want to start off with this morning is I want to break down this verse of scripture and I want you to see, first of all, the qualifier of their faith. What was the qualifier of their faith? What caused these men to cry out in verse 5, Oh God, increase our faith. 
Well, you see, Jesus was presenting a couple of different scenarios here, both of which have to do with sin. You see, in the first scenario, when we get into verses 1 and 2, Jesus seems to be warning the group about those who are, excuse me, who are going to deliberately lead other people into sin. It's in this section that Jesus says it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. By the way, there are little nuggets everywhere in the Bible. We read that and we say, yeah, it would be better for a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. But there's context here. Did you know there's only two places in Israel where they used millstones? One of them was in Capernaum. The other was south of the Sea of Galilee toward the Negev. Two places. So Jesus is looking at a millstone and saying it would be better for one of these to be tied around the neck. By the way, do you all know what a millstone is? Let me explain to you what a millstone is. A millstone is this big, huge rock that was placed in a circular trough. And there would be a boom arm extending from the center of that, uh, of that trough. And they would put a donkey inside the, the bridle coming off of that boom arm. And they would take the grain and they would pour it all inside that circular trough. And that donkey would step up into that bridle and he would walk in circles all day long, towing that millstone around that trough, grinding up the grain, grinding up the grain. They say to this day, it's so inherent, it's so inherent in the DNA now of those donkeys that all of the donkeys naturally in Israel walk in a circle, walk in a circle because it's so ingrained in them. All right, here we go. Jesus says it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. But then Jesus turns things around and he says in verse 3, but be on guard. It's as if Jesus says, okay, I've told you this one thing. You've got to make sure that you do not lead others into sin and temptation. But hold on. There's something else. Can I, can I ask you a question? How daunting would it be if somebody walked up to you today and said, hey, for the rest of your natural life, you are not to walk into sin. Not only that, you are not to do anything, may not be sinful to you, but you are not to cause anybody else to walk into sin as well. That's a pretty daunting thought, isn't it? And if that wasn't enough, Jesus then stops and says, but hold on, there's more. And he says, because if somebody transgresses against you, even if he does it seven times a day, what are you supposed to do? Forgive them. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What does it mean for us to recognize and, and be walking in a relationship with God so strongly that we can see when temptation is coming? We know when sin is about to, to, to come up on us and we're able to, to turn and walk away from it. That means that we have a very, very close 
plugged-in relationship with our Lord and Savior, would it not? I agree that it would. I believe that is a prerequisite if you want that kind of behavior in your life. You need to be plugged in. But here's what happens. And no doubt, this is what the disciples are thinking. Okay, so if I'm going to be so plugged into Jesus Christ that I see when sin is coming into my life, here's the problem. I'm going to see it coming into other people's lives as well. And I know that those other people aren't necessarily going to walk away from sin the way that I have disciplined myself to walk away from sin. So the disciples are sitting here thinking, not only do I have to keep myself from sin, I have to watch as other people are willingly walk into sin. And then I have to take the opportunity when they come to me to forgive them. No wonder they cried out in verse 5, Oh God, please increase our faith. We can't do this on our own. There's no way we can do those things on our own. In fact, 1 John 3.16, Jesus told us, this is how we come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to stand in the stead for them. We're supposed to help them. We're supposed to help point out sin in their lives to them and forgive them. With these two scenarios put together, as Jesus teaches them, you have an incredibly difficult pill to swallow. On the one hand, we need to be careful not to lead people into sin and not to sin ourselves. But yet, on the other hand, we also need to be quick to forgive others. And in response to this very difficult task, they cry out, increase our faith. You know, we are a very loving and accepting people here at Calvary. I, I've, I've, seen, I've, seen, uh, I've seen people love on visitors and things like that. But you know, sometimes, sometimes, every once in a while, we, we, we get a little sideways sometimes in our, own, in our own way. Sometimes people walk in, and, and, and I'll tell you, and I've been in ministry now for... 17 years. And I, and I see what happens sometimes. And it's usually not in a Sunday morning church service. Can I tell you? It usually didn't happen on Sunday morning. You know when it happens? Sometimes it happens around Christmas time when the Iwana kids are coming up. Right? And they're doing their little thing. Or sometimes it happens on a VBS night or, or, or VBS celebration or something like that. Can I tell you that the church is expressly built for people who don't know him. We're here to worship him. We're here to grow in him. We're here to learn from his word. But then we are to, this is a training center. We are to then turn those things that we've learned and go out into the world and disciple other people, share with them Jesus. But every once in a while, those lost people come in here. They come in here to see their kids. They come in here to see their family members. They're coming in here to see their grandchildren do something very special here at the church. And sometimes we have the audacity to look at them and say, well, why are they dressed like that? Why do they have that on? Why are they sitting in my spot? 
Ooh, that hit some conviction right there. <laughs> We're making light of the subject, but can I tell you, it happens. It happens. If they've had nobody to teach them how they're supposed to do things, why do we question when they do them? Why do we condemn them for doing things that we've done in our lives? Amen. We say, I'm not who I used to be because of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we need to remember where we were because they're in the same boat. We need to have the faith to be able to look beyond the temporal, to be able to look beyond how that person is dressed, where they're sitting, what they may have said, how they smell, whatever, and love on them as Jesus has called us to love on them and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give them the reason for the hope that is in us. We've talked about the qualifier of faith. Why did these men cry out, increase our faith, O Lord? Next, I want you to see the quantity of faith. The truth of it is, is that we really do need more faith in our lives. The reality is, is, is such that living out the teachings of Christ requires us to be less like ourselves and to be more like him. It can be difficult to believe that it's even possible, let alone probable, for us to do some of the things that Jesus asks us, but it's not a new problem. In fact, in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 28, it says this, it says, uh, but Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, one of the twelve. That, that's important. One of the twelve. One of the twelve who walked with Jesus did not believe that it was Jesus standing in front of him. But it says he was not with us when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, listen, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my fingers in the mark of the nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. And a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put him in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And then Thomas responded, truly the only way that Thomas could have responded, My Lord and my God. Thomas famously doubted that Jesus had resurrected from the grave. And Jesus met him in his doubt. He met him exactly where, his, where he was, inviting him to put his fingers in the very hole where the spear had pierced Jesus' side. In response, Jesus encourages Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Or in other words... Have more faith. I shared a little bit of this last week as we were, as we were honoring Pastor John. And the Holy Spirit has been, I, I've been wrestling with the Holy Spirit about, about saying this this morning because it fits so well with what we're talking about. Last week I mentioned that when I came here in December of 2019, 
the re, uh, Pastor John had joked that they kept trying to get me to submit my resume over and over and over again. And the reason I had not is because I was wrestling with even being in ministry ever again. When I say I was done, I don't mean that as just a flippant statement. I was done. I had gone through hurt and pain. I had gone through... I, 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 had, I had gone through... It was four years ago this week. We had a huge tent revival at our church. And the very first night we watched countless dozens of people that night come to Jesus Christ. Coming and giving their heart to the Lord. And the next morning I walked into an email from my pastor telling me everything that I had done wrong the night before. Now, I, I don't doubt his faith. I don't doubt we, uh, <laughs> we entered into a, uh, a working relationship that probably we should have avoided because he was my father-in-law. And that was very difficult for both of us to navigate. And over the 14 years that we had been together, we didn't navigate it very well. He did things wrong, I did things wrong. There was guilt on both sides. Because believe it or not, I can be a stubborn-headed mule when I, when I want to be. <laughs> Clyde, I'll see you at the altar. <laughs> but it was at that moment after 14 years of going through that relationship and going through those struggles that I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I watched you move so heavily and awesomely last night and then to come into this the next morning wrecked my faith. It muted everything the Holy Spirit had done. We were up all night the night before. We could not go to sleep praising God about what he had done. And then the next morning this happens. Now I am not without fault in the situation. It was at that point I dug my heels in and I was as obstinate as anybody could possibly be. But the one thing I did do was I went to God and I said, God, I can't repair this relationship. I've tried to do everything within my power to make this person happy and I can't do it anymore. So God, you're going to have to fix it. One way or the other, you're going to have to fix it. And I'm going to tell you the long version of this story so you'll hold on just a moment. We couldn't stay for the whole tent revival that week. It was going on for six nights, but we had already planned on that Friday morning to be in Greenville because at that point we were still homeschooling our children. We were going to the homeschool conference. We were driving up. We stopped for lunch at Chick-fil-A outside of Orangeburg and we're sitting there having lunch. And a dear friend of mine in the ministry, Dennis Carter, called me. And he said, Tony, I need to ask you a question. I said, okay. I said, I need to know if you and your kids will come and sing worship for us at a camp that we're doing in Tacoa Falls this summer. He said, I've got 
four other pastors here with me. They've wanted to go in a different direction. He says, but I know you, and I know you're not just going to come in and sing, that you and your kids are going to get involved. And I said, well, thank you, Dennis. I appreciate that. I said, let me pray about it, and let me make sure. And we prayed about it. And I called him back probably. I think, I, I think we waited till the next day. We, we were solidified in our heart that we were going to do it, but I called him back the next I waited till the next day. And I said, Dennis, yeah, we're going to do it. And he says, okay, I want you to come and meet these guys. Those guys that I met that day have become some of my best friends over the past four years. It's Pastor Jeff, Pastor Mark, Pastor Jonathan Greiner, who's now at Andrews with Mark. They, were, they are some of the best friends that I have in ministry right now. And when we got through with camp, I can't, Mark asked me to come up here and meet him. He said, listen, I've got to tell you something. I've accepted the job as a senior pastor. He was the youth pastor here at Calvary. He says, I've accepted the, the, the job as the senior pastor at, North, at uh, First Baptist Andrews. He says, and God keeps telling me over and over and over again that you're supposed to replace me. You're supposed to be the guy to take over. And I said, Mark, I don't know if I can. I said, I don't know if I have it in me to do this anymore. I said, I'm wrecked. I, I, I said, it, I said all, all of those wonderful things that happened, I remember this conversation. We were standing right over there, right in the parking lot outside what used to be his parsonage. I said, Mark, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I said, because let me tell you, every single wonderful thing that we saw happen at camp, and we were baptizing kids, kids were getting saved in the service, we were running outside into the lake and baptizing them right there. We weren't giving them a chance to change their mind. We were baptizing them right there in the lake. The Holy Spirit was moving, and the whole time, my soul was crushed. It was like my spirit had a mute button on it, and everything that was going on in my life was just, nope, you can't experience this. You can't feel this. And I told him, I said, Mark, I don't know if I can do this anymore. He knew what was going on. He knew the story. And he looked at me in that parking lot. He said, Tony, God's not done with you. I know God's not done with you. And I want you to do this. And I'm still being the obstinate, stubborn person that I am. I still waited and dragged my feet even if Pastor John was telling me over and over again, please come put in your resume. Please come put in your resume. I finally did. I finally, I finally relented to God's calling. And all this while, during this process, I'm saying God over and over and over again, God, give me faith. I don't have enough faith right now to be able to do this. And this verse of scripture kept coming back into the back of my head. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I kept saying back to God, God, I don't have enough faith. And Tori and I, we laugh about it now. We tested God. I know you're not supposed to do that, but we threw so many fleeces. God, if you'll do this, God, if you'll open this door, God, if you'll do this, we know it's, we're supposed to come to Calvary. And God finally beat us down enough and threw us enough fleeces and show, opened enough doors and showed us how bullheaded we were to say this is where we're supposed to be and look at where we are now. When you feel like you don't have enough faith 
when you don't feel like you can go anymore, that's when you cry out to God, God, please increase my faith. God, increase my faith. And the beauty of all of it is that Jesus meets us in our doubt. He meets us in our fear. He meets us in our weakness. He meets us in our sin. And as we continue to see in our main passage today, he seems to be saying that faith is simply reality of the kingdom available to everybody who will believe for each and every scenario that they're going to face in their life. And although we need more faith, what does Jesus teach us here? He said it only takes this much. It only takes a small mustard seed of faith to do miraculous things. Because you see, he says in Luke 17 and verse 6, he says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. Jesus begins by comparing their faith to the tiniest of seeds. Have you all ever seen a mustard seed? It's tiny. Have you ever tasted a mustard seed? It's not so tiny. It's powerful. It's very, very powerful. But he tells them, and he tells them again in our companion verse in Matthew chapter 17, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, it'll obey you. And then in Matthew chapter 17, verse 19 and 20, it says this, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and says, we couldn't cast it out. You see, they were trying to cast out a demon. They were trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it. And it took Jesus coming to cast out that demon. And they came to him afterwards and said, why could we not do it? He said, because you didn't have enough faith. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, what does he say in, verse 17, in, in chapter 17 of Matthew? Surely I say to you, if you have the faith of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, those are lofty words for us to hear, right? But there's context to this. This is why when you, when you study the Bible and you read the Bible and you begin to understand the context of the Bible and where Jesus was when he said these words to these men, why it has so much meaning for them and it should have so much meaning for us. I want to show you all a picture. There's a picture on the screen. Owen, pull that, pull that picture up for me. This is a picture taken by a dear friend of mine, Pastor Robbie Foreman, down the street at Together Church. Great friend of mine, great encourager of mine. He took this picture three weeks ago when he was in Israel. He's a great photographer. I love his work. Uh, I'm inspired by him. But I want you to look at these two mountains, right? There's one on the left, one on the right. What do you notice is different about them? It looks like the one on the left has been scalped at the top, right? Can I tell you the truth of the matter? That mountain there on the left didn't used to be there. It was in front of the other mountain. Let me tell you this story. That big mountain, that's a place called Herodium. King Herod built a wonderful palace on top of that large mountain. And he built it there because it was strategic. It was strategic for the defense of his city and for the defense of his temple that he built on top of there. But the problem was is that that other mountain 
obscured the people's view to his beautiful palace that he had built. And his ego said, that mountain has got to move. So he enlisted his thousands upon thousands of slaves, bucket by bucket, to move dirt and sediment and move that mountain to where you see it is today. You say, what does this have to do with our story? Because this happened, Herod did that before Jesus made this statement. That was a historical event that these men, remem that these men remembered. Oh, and by the way, they were standing in front of this mountain when Jesus said that. Jesus is saying, Herod took thousands upon thousands of his slaves to move that mountain. I'm telling you it only takes a mustard seed of faith in your heart. And that mountain will get up for you and move. Why? Because God says, I created that mountain. And I created you. And if you believe in me, and if you make me Lord of your life, you will do miraculous things. That mountain will move. When we ask for God in something, for something in faith, we're not relying on slaves to do the work. We're not working, we're not relying on a team of fellow employees at our workplace to help us finish the task. We're not looking at our family, at the proverbial mountain of laundry that is piled up in our lives to get it folded up and put away. We're talking to the creator of that mountain and the creator of every single atom and organism that surrounds it. And he knew long ago what his son was going to say and where he was going to be standing. And he knew the desires of his children and that if we just believe that God can move the mountain and we have faith in the one who put it there that cares for us and wants his absolute best for us, then that mountain is going to move. And if it doesn't matter if that mountain is your failing marriage, it doesn't matter if that mountain is your wayward children, it doesn't matter if it's your finances or if it's your boss or if it's your addiction or if it's that cancer that has come back again the Lord God above wants to move mountains for you if you just have faith if you just have faith God will move those mountains in your life that mountain in front of those disciples in Luke chapter 17 was the life that God was calling them to live. The Lord Jesus standing in the flesh in front of them was calling them to live and they said we can't do it. And he says if you just have enough faith, you can do it. He told the disciples again as they were standing in front of Herodium as they were unable to cast out that demon out of that man. How do we do it? It just takes this little bit of faith. So let's talk about it practically for just a moment. Does this mean that we have the ability to do some kind of Jedi mind trick, right? These are not the droids you're looking for. No, right? That's not what we're called to. Is that what he's calling us to do? Well, to give you a simple answer, yeah. 
and no. I'm not trying to be coy with you this morning, but what I am trying to say is that we don't know how God answers our prayers. We don't know in what time frame God chooses to answer prayer. Our prayers and faith should be God in your will and your way. I'm asking for this. I'm praying for this miracle. And God, I need you to show up. But do you realize we will in our prayer life at times try to tell the almighty God of this universe when and how to answer those prayers? We will try to direct, just like King Herod, how the mountain is supposed to be moved. God is not asking for our assistance in these matters. He's asking for our faithfulness. So we've talked this morning about why we need the faith. We've talked about how much faith we need. Let's talk about the quality of that faith. How do we move these mountains? Let me show you this. Luke chapter 17. Let's finish off our section this morning. 7 through 10. It says this. Jesus says to them, which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes into the field, come at once, sit down and eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink and later you can eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say we are unworthy servants. We've done, uh, we've only done our duty. Let me summarize what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus is telling them, if you want to have this kind of faith, if you want to tap into this kind of mountain-moving faith, number one, it takes humility. What Jesus is saying in this verse of Scripture is, how many of you would tell your servant when they get through working for you all day long, come in, come in, sit down and eat. I've already cooked for you. I've got everything ready for you. You've done a great job today. You come on in and eat. But that's not what they would do. They would have that servant work out in the fields or work out for, the, for their job or, or, or work for the, for the man's business all day long. And they would come in and say, hey, now that you're done with that, go fix dinner. Go prepare the meal for tonight. And when I'm done, when I've ate, when I've drank, then you can sit down and you can, you can, you can eat as well. God calls us to have humility. Humility. Now look back with me at Matthew chapter 17. Because I want you to look at, in this chapter, in, in verse 21. You got your Bibles? Okay. Now look at me. We're going to have a little, we're, we're going to do, do a little Bible study this morning. We're, we're going to do a little theology lesson here. Y'all ready? Raise your hand if you look back in your Bible at Matthew chapter 17 and you have verse 21 in your Bible. How many of you have it? A few hands? Okay, great. How many of you don't? No, a few of you don't. A few of you don't have that verse of Scripture in your Bible. I'll tell you why. Some of you might even have verse 21 in there, but it's in brackets. But some of you go from 19, 20, 21, or excuse me, 19, 20, all the way to 22. There's no 21. Let me tell you, let me tell you why. Most modern translations of the Bible and revisions of those translations from about the 1970s forward are not going to have verse 21 in them. It's interesting. 
And a lot of old dyed-in-the-wool Baptists are going to sit there and tell you that that translation that you hold in your lap that doesn't have verse 21 in there is heretical. It's of the devil. It's not the inspired word of God. That is nonsense. It's nonsense. Let me explain to you how this works. Because as archaeology, technology, all of those things have gotten better at translating the Bible. Uh, translating the Bible has gotten more advanced over the years. You, you, you know, you know here's, the, here's the great thing about the Bible. I love this. Um, do you know uh, original copies? Let's talk about original manuscripts for just a moment. Um, let's see. Uh, how many of you in high school studied Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey? Y'all had to do that, right? Um, do y'all know how many original manuscripts written down by Homer we have of the Iliad and the Odyssey? Zero. We don't even know that a man named Homer ever existed. Um, uh, um, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. That's how we know about the conquests of Julius Caesar and the movement of the Holy Roman Empire and, and all of those kinds of things. Do you know that there are less than 15 original manuscripts of that book? Do you know how many original manuscripts we have of the Bible and the New Testament and the words written? Thousands. And we find more every year. Here's what happened to Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. As they begin to study these over and over and over again, and they've got more reliable, accurate transcripts. And when I say accurate, remember, they didn't have photocopiers back in the day, right? They didn't have mimeograph machines. They couldn't upload it to the cloud, right? What did they do? They wrote it down over and over and over again, meticulously writing these things down so that they would be preserved for generations upon generations upon generations. What they found is that the most reliable texts, original manuscripts that they have now of Matthew chapter 17 do not contain verse 21. They're all, they're all as they get closer and closer and closer to the original time that it happened, the events took place, they do not find verse 21. We say, and, and many people, many people who fight against the Bible, who, who say that the Bible isn't really God's inspired word, they'll use that verse of scripture to say, to, to try to prove their point, right? Well, let me tell you what happened. We find something very similar. You see, Jesus is, they're telling this story of the man who was, uh, who was demon possessed, right? Here's the funny thing. We have other eyewitnesses in the Bible who saw that very same thing happen. It's over in Mark chapter 9. And guess what Mark chapter 9, verse 29 says? The same thing that's redacted from Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. So basically, as they were writing down all of these copies, basically what these scribes did is they looked at each other and said, this is the same thing, right? Yeah, it's the exact same thing. Well, Matthew doesn't say that he said this really important thing here at the end, but Mark does. So do you think we ought to put the really important thing at the end of Matthew's? Yeah, yeah sure, let's do that. They were telling the same story. It was as if 
you went, let, let, let's, say, let's say the cops came to your house, right? I don't know what for. Some of y'all don't tell me anything about your lives. I'm just trusting that everything's okay. Here's what happens. We see three eyewitnesses that happen. I go out because I'm nosy and I want to know why the cops were at your house, Bill. Okay? So I go to Johnny and I find out what Johnny knows and I go to David and I find out what David knows and then I go to Billy and I find out what Billy knows. And I put all of those three things together and I come up with a story. It's the same thing that happened in Matthew chapter 17. But it's important that we understand those things. Because somebody who does not have a lot of faith or a lot of knowledge about who Jesus Christ is and how his word has been supernaturally, supernaturally preserved over the generations. If some atheist came to them and said, well, how do you explain Matthew chapter 17, 21 not being in the Bible? They wouldn't know how to answer. Their faith would be shaken. I'm trying to tell you that there's a world out there that is trying to shake your faith. You need to have the answers to be able to combat that. I'm giving you the information to say that this supernaturally happened. So let's be biblical scholars for just a moment and look at these two verses side by side from the New King James Version where it is contained in both of them. Matthew chapter 17 verse 21 says this. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This kind of what? This kind of demon. This kind of faith to cast out this kind of demon doesn't happen except for prayer and fasting. What does it say in Mark chapter 9? He said to them, this kind can't come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Same account, same words. So now that we understand, let's get back to this. Remember what we've already talked about, about how increasing our faith requires humility in Luke chapter 17. So what does this eyewitness account of Jesus' words tell us in Matthew 17 and Mark 9? That this kind of power happens, this kind of faith only comes by prayer and fasting. You want this kind of mountain-moving power in your life? It's going to come from humility, it's going to come from prayer, and it's going to come from fasting. We know about humility. I hope we know about humility. We certainly know about prayer. What about fasting? This is what a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people say is fasting is when you just don't eat. Moses and Jesus both fasted in the desert for 40 days. Pastor, I don't think I could go without 40 days, go 40 days without some Chick-fil-A. I understand. I'm in the same boat. We're okay. Nobody's calling you to do that, and I really don't believe that God is calling anyone to a 40-day fast right now. Listen, Moses and Jesus were under divine direction from God who sustained them through those fasting periods because he was preparing them for something very, very special, a very special calling. In the case of Jesus, Matthew records in chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit now to be tempted in the desert. We can assume Moses' case that the power of God sustained him on that mountain. And there are examples and reasons in the Bible for fasting. Esther, chapter 4, Esther and her handmaidens. The Jews, they all fast both day and night for about two and a half days. Daniel, chapter 6, a fast from food and entertainment. Surprisingly, done by Darius, who was not a Jew, but did hope that Daniel's God would deliver him from the lions. 
Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, a severe fast brought on by humility and repentance. We talked about that in our Sunday school class this morning. The people of Nineveh who did not know God, who their only example of who a holy God was, was from the prophets who were faithful to stand up and preach to the people of uh, the Hebrew people, to God's people in the midst of their captivity. They fasted and prayed because of the example that they had seen from other God-fearing people. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. A fast from marital relations for the purposes of prayer. This isn't something that's required for couples to do. Rather, it's allowable by mutual consent only for a short time. Psalm 35, 11 through 16, a fast of wearing sackcloth and denial of food to pray for the health of someone ill and to mourn. Why prayer and fasting? Why are these two things always linked together in the Bible? Listen, here's why. And if you don't get anything else that I've said today, I want you to write this down. Prayer attaches you to God. Fasting detaches you from the world. Prayer attaches you to God and fasting detaches you from the world. So while the disciples are fretting about having more faith in their lives, Jesus is quick to remind them how powerful even the tiniest amount of faith can be in their lives. They're saying we need more and more and more. And he's actually saying you don't need more and more and more. You just need to use what you have. It's just a small amount of faith is all that you need. But you need to be humble. You need to be connected to God. And you need to be detached from the world. I'm going to wrap up this morning because I've already gone quite a bit far longer than I had anticipated today. Maybe you and I don't need a substantial increase in what we already have. Maybe we need to simply recognize that there is more, enough, more than enough faith in our lives and in the kingdom for every scenario that we face today. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Maybe you need to take a first step today. Maybe you need to stop staring at those mountains that are in your life and telling God how immensely huge it all is. And maybe you need to start telling your problems how immensely huge your God is. Maybe a tiny mustard seed of faith is all it takes to move a mountain. I know that we all have those mountains in our lives, but I also know as we've seen today that we have more than enough faith through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for anything that comes our way. And as I said at the beginning of our time, we've all asked for more faith at some point in our lives. It's not wrong to ask. It's not wrong to turn to God when we're feeling weak in our faith. Life is difficult. And there are a lot of scenarios that we face where we feel completely overwhelmed and completely debilitated. But I believe it is so incredibly, vitally important to remember the truths that Jesus is reminding us of today. That we are ambassadors. We are conquerors. We are agents of reconciliation. We will constantly be facing situations that require more than we think that we can handle. And at the same time, we are, we are a community of faith, by faith, and empowered by faith to do and accomplish all that we've been called to do in this life by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, 
But this simple shift in perspective gives me a jolt of encouragement. I'm reminded that mountains are moved by mustard seeds of faith. And I'm also reminded that my lack of faith, my doubts, my fears are normal. Even somebody like Thomas, somebody who walked with Jesus, had his doubts and his fears, and he struggled with them. By the way, this same Thomas that was such a doubter went on to evangelize India with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jacob's going to come this morning and he's going to start playing. And I'm calling our people to the altar today. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, cry out to him today for more faith. Increase our faith, Lord. You know, we're also in a time of transition here at Calvary. Our faithful, humble, wonderful leader of 23 years has moved into a new season of his life. And I believe that we need to call on that mustard seed of faith for God to move mountains and guide us with kingdom wisdom into this next season of our church. We need to humble ourselves. We need to pray and fast and ask God to place the right person in this pulpit to lead us into the next generation. But you know, I understand that there are other circumstances going on in the lives of the people here at Calvary Baptist Church. And this altar is open this morning. And I'm asking our people to come and to pray. What is God calling you to today? What step of faith do you need to take? What scenario in your life feels overwhelming to you? Remember, we are a community of faith by faith and empowered by faith to do and accomplish all that we've been called to do by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as Jacob plays this morning, I'm asking our people to come forward to this altar today and pray for faith. Pray for faith in those situations that you're going through in your life. Pray for the faith that it takes that's going to lead us into the next generation of this church here at Calvary. And maybe you're sitting there today and you're saying to yourself, you know what, Pastor Tony? That's great. I'd love to have that power. I'd love to know what that power feels like. Can I tell you that the first step of having that kind of power is a relationship with Jesus Christ? It is a sold out, blood bought relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us on the cross because of our sin, because of the mistakes that we make. He bought us, paid a price for us that we couldn't pay. And he says that if you will believe that I died for you, if you will accept me into your life, and if you will make me Lord over your life, you can have salvation. You can have this kind of faith that will literally move mountains. And so if you've been struggling in your life, 
trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose, trying to find hope. I mean, can I be so bold this morning as to tell you that Jesus is what you've been looking for? He is the one who can offer it to you and he's offering it to you today. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I know you love me. And Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm taking my hands off the wheel and realizing that I can't do it anymore and that it's all up to you. So come into my life and take over. And if you've done that this morning, if you've made that decision and you've relented and said, I can't do it anymore. I need Jesus to do it for me. I believe in him. I believe in what he did for me then I can tell you this morning without a shadow of a doubt because our Bible tells us, the inspired word of God tells us that you have been saved. And as our people are up here this morning and they're praying over the things in their life, I'm going to take a moment and pray for those who do not know him or maybe who have taken the first step in knowing him today. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done here today in this place. We thank you for the movement of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for that person who maybe for the very first time in their life has surrendered it to you, has said, I can't do it on my own. I know all the stories. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he was God's son but I've never accepted it into my life and I've never let him take over. Father, I pray for that person today. I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give them hope, that you would give him faith to know that whatever is asked for in your name, according to your will, you are faithful to do it. God, give us the faith to move the mountains in our lives today. The things that we struggle with, the things that we can't seem to get over. Lord, we're praying over those mountains in our lives. Give us victory over those mountains in our lives. Help us to see that all it takes is a small seed of faith. It's all we need to see mountains moved. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. And I pray that the Holy Spirit has moved in us in such a way that we're not going to be able to contain it, that we're going to run out of these doors today and proclaim to everyone that we see how good of a God you are and how awesome you are and how much everybody needs you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church family.